Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ has spoken to us. And he said so many wonderful things. But Lord, we know that Jesus has also said some difficult things. And that for some people, they're deeply, deeply offended by the words of Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that now you will prepare our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that we would hear what the Spirit has to say to us. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to listen to Jesus and to submit to him in honesty and in humility. That, Lord, we would allow the word of God to mold us and shape us into the, into the very image of Jesus so that we could become more and more like him in obedience and submission. Lord, we thank you that we have grace and mercy and salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 6, we're going to finish the chapter. It says in verse 59, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Kefer Nahum or Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. You don't have to be a Christian for very long before you discover something, that Jesus will say some things that are very difficult to understand and some things difficult to accept. And the response will usually be one of three responses. You will desert him. You will... Declare your love and your loyalty to him and you will resolve to follow him or you will deceive yourself and make yourself believe that he's saying something that he didn't really mean. The sixth chapter of John's Gospel begins with a series of signs. It continues with a sermon, and the sermon reveals the person of Jesus, that he is the bread of life who's come down from heaven, the source of nourishment in verses 32 through 40. 
Then Jesus reveals the process of salvation. We've looked at that in verses 43 through 52. And the power of salvation in verses 53 through 65. So the chapter moves from signs to sermon to sifting. And we're in the sifting part. It is the Word of God revealing the person of Jesus. And the Word of God which reveals the person of Jesus separates the true from the false, the right from the wrong. Here we're going to see the believer and the make-believer separated. The called and the curious divided. Most people are attracted to Jesus. Don't you think that's true? Don't you think that most people that you talk with about Christ, even when people talk with you before you became a Christian, you said, it's not Jesus that I have a problem with. It's you. It's you Christians. I'm not offended by Jesus. I love Jesus. Jesus is a wonderful guy. What's not to love about Jesus? The most important person who's ever lived. The reality is most people don't listen carefully to what he said. In their minds, Jesus would never say anything or Jesus would never say do anything that was offensive. But Jesus did offend. His message offended the religious leaders. It wasn't an accident that they arrested him. It wasn't an accident that they killed him. It wasn't an accident. There was a specific and hostile response to the words of Jesus. My friend Sammy Tanago was born in Egypt, and he was raised as a Coptic Christian in a largely Muslim society. God has given him a tremendous desire to minister to Muslims. God has filled his heart with a love and a deep regard for them. And when I had him on my radio program, I'll never remember something that he said. He said, confine your offense to the gospel. And when he said those words, it it occurred to me that there's many things that I do say that are offensive. It is my words, it's my actions, it's my hypocrisy, it's my duplicity that creates a problem. It isn't necessarily Jesus, but when Jesus speaks the truth, we have an obligation to respond to the truth. Imagine you have a child, and many of you do. Imagine you have a child and the child closes her eyes and turns her back on the sun and says to you, the sun no longer exists. Does closing your eye and turning your back on the sun make the sun go away? You can say, close your eyes as tight as you can. But guess what? The plants are still growing. Um, Photosynthesis is still taking place. The planet is still being heated. Closing your eyes and turning your back on the Son of God does not make the claims of Jesus go away. Before I became a Christian, I was deeply offended by Christians. Quite frankly, I hated them. I thought Christians were stupid and ignorant. I thought Christians were, for the most part, arrogant and elitist. I thought Christians were so narrow-minded that they could see through the keyhole of a door with both eyes wide open. That's pretty narrow-minded. 
So what do you say to your family and your friends who say, well, doesn't the Christian Bible suggest that other religions are false? Um, Isn't it arrogant and intolerant to claim that Christianity is the one and only true religion? Hasn't the idea that Christianity is is the only religion led to wars and persecution against other religions? Aren't all religions equally true? Hospitals remove Bibles from patients' rooms in order not to offend the unbelieving patient. My friend Bill Federer wrote an online article for World Nut Daily. Excuse me, World Net Daily. Some of the articles are pretty good. But in this article he wrote, Daily there are news reports of atheists offended by prayer at graduation and football games. They're offended by the cross. They're offended by the Star of David. They're offended by Christmas carols. They're offended by patriotic hymns. They're offended by Christmas trees. They're offended by menorahs. They're offended by the Ten Commandments or under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, offended that a teacher might hint that there might be a creator, offended by a soldier who says, God bless you at a funeral, offended by a Boy Scout oath which says, I will do my duty to God and my country, offended by the cross at a veteran's memorial. He says that 1% of the population is imposing offense on the majority simply because they are offended by the fact that there might be a God, but like the child who closes her eyes and turns her back, guess what? There's still right and wrong. There's still good and evil. There's still truth and false. And the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be quenched because every time the unbeliever opens his or her eyes and sees a world that is created, there's a subtle reminder. There's a creator. Every time they come to a place where they're willing to acknowledge that something might be right and something might be wrong, they're saying to their conscience, there's such a thing as good and there's such a thing as evil. The words of Jesus will create a firestorm of open defection. Thin-skinned followers will now beat a hasty retreat. Those people who have followed Jesus, who have admired Jesus, who have listened to Jesus teach, who have watched Jesus heal, who have seen Jesus perform miracles, will now abandon him. Look what the text says, never to return. The offense of Jesus will create a mechanism where one of three things invariably will happen. People will desert Jesus People will deny what he is saying or people will depend that his words are true and they'll grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. Standing right there was a person who looked and sounded like a disciple, but he was in fact deceived. His name has become a metaphor for betrayal. His name is Judas. We begin with the hard saying. Look again in verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Remember chapter 6 has begun outdoors with the feeding of the 5,000 and the crossing of a lake. And then Jesus goes into the synagogue at Capernaum and he begins to preach this message that we've looked at in great detail over the past several weeks. 
how Jesus is the nourishment, the bread that has come down from heaven. Jesus is making the most astonishing claims that He came from heaven, that He's the source of life, and He is fundamentally the instrument of judgment. In John's Gospel, Jesus has turned water into wine in chapter 2, verse 1. He's healed the nobleman's son in chapter 4, verse 46. He's healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, verse 1. He's fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, verse 1. He's walked on the water in chapter 6, verse 15 through 21. In John's Gospel, there will be two more signs. Jesus will heal a blind man in chapter 9, verse 1. And then Jesus will bring Lazarus back to life in the 11th chapter. John's Gospel declares and affirms that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that He is the Word made flesh, the God who becomes man, the the, the man who is born of a virgin, morally perfect, the only incarnation of God, the only Savior who will die for our sins on the cross, who will offer us eternal life, who claims to raise the dead and judge the dead, and that He Himself will come back from the dead. He says the most outrageous, the most ridiculous, the most unimaginable thing He says that faith in Him is necessary for salvation. This is what really turned me off to Christianity. You can't say that. You can't say that Jesus is the only way to God. I watch Oprah. Oprah says that Jesus isn't the only way to God. Well, Jesus claims that He is the only way to God. I remember this guy who led me to the Lord, began witnessing to me. And he just asked me the most innocent question. He said, are you a Christian? I said, of course I am. I'm a Catholic. And I remember literally, not audibly, but hearing in my heart, in every fiber in my being, I could hear a voice saying, no, you're not. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Where did that come from? And I remember the person invited me to see a concert at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And to sweeten the pot, he threw in a couple of cheerleaders, hot cheerleaders. Now, you got to understand something. I have no desire to know God or know Jesus or get saved. I have every desire to be with the cheerleaders. So, reluctantly, I decide to go to this Christian concert. But it's two hours from the high desert of Southern California down to Orange County. So I start up a conversation and I start talking to this person who's driving. And this is what offended me most. Are you going to tell me that your religion is the only religion? And he goes, I don't know, man, but you'll see. That's not what I want to hear. I want to get into a rousing debate so we can discuss the exclusivity of of, of Christianity. Now, this happened a long time ago. So when I asked the question, I said, do you realize that there are 450 Muslims in the world? Are you going to tell me they're all going to hell? By the way, there's over a billion now. So you can see how long ago it was. Are you going to tell me 450 Muslims are going to hell? He goes, I don't know, man, but you will see. Are you going to tell me that 750 million Hindus are going to go to hell just because they don't believe the way that you believe? I don't know, man. 
difficult to see. It was a hopeless conversation. He didn't bring me to John chapter 6 and John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. And it was a good thing because I think really what I wanted to do was to argue. This gave me a time to really think and prepare. Most unbelievers and many believers suggest that God will accept the sincere efforts of the unevangelized or the sincere religious people of other religions in lieu of personal faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is that there's no biblical evidence to support that position and much biblical evidence to support that the idea is wrong. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many, many, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? That expression, hard saying, means offensive and intolerable. The word hard is the Greek word skleros. It means hard to the touch or Rough. Some of you have family and, and friends who have multiple sclerosis. The word sclerosis comes from this Greek word scleros. It's the hardening of the filament on the nerve fibers that create a, a mechanism where the body is unable to control its own movements. And so here it's used to mean rough. Hard. It's used in James chapter 3, verse 4, which speaks of strong or hard winds blowing in an opposite direction. In Jude 15, it's used to describe harsh things that were spoken. The idea isn't so much that this is hard to understand or difficult to accept, but rather this means hard to swallow. In other words, it is a concept that for most people, they say, I can't go there. I don't believe that. As an unbeliever, that would, would be my words. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Of course not. I can't swallow that. But Jesus says that he's the only one who's come down from heaven. He's the only one able to give nourishment in life. The hard saying of Jesus isn't mean that it's difficult to understand in the sense of what isn't there to understand. A child can understand the most simple and basic thing. Jesus came from heaven. He was born of a virgin. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Okay, okay, I, I get that. But do you believe it? Some of you do. Some of you don't. Jesus, who is admired, Jesus, who has fed the multitudes, Jesus, who has healed the sick, now becomes a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, an obstacle, a barrier. Hannah Moore once commented, obstacles are those frightful things you see when you take your eyes off the goal. And for the religious leaders and the Jewish people who are listening to this speech, those who are walking in Judaism, they've heard the revelation of God. They've heard the prophets for hundreds of years. They have walked through the circumstances with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and 
David and Solomon and Moses. These are Jewish people who have gone to the temple, who pray, who give to the poor. These are religious people. And Jesus has said, I'm the Messiah and I've come down from heaven and I'm here to save you. When the prophet Isaiah prophesied concerning the Messiah, he was talking about me. And they don't believe it. Not because the words are difficult to understand. The religious leaders are not stupid people. It's not intellectual. It's the moral demands that keep people from becoming Christians. The real difficulty of Christianity is the demand that it is that you have to repent of your sin, that you have to surrender to Christ. It's it's believing his claim to be the bread that comes from heaven. To this day, people don't reject Jesus because Jesus makes no sense. People reject Jesus because he challenges your life. By the way, if you plan on running for president, you might want to resign your membership at Calvary Chapel for what I'm about to say. Rest assured that it will be found offensive. But I want to confine my offense to the gospel. People desperately want to believe. They desperately want to believe that Jesus is willing and able to forgive your sin, but they're unwilling to repent and forsake their sin. They, they want to acknowledge a historical Jesus. They want to embrace a Christianity that constitutes religious activity. They want Christianity and they want a Christ, but they want a Christianity and a Christ that doesn't involve a cross and doesn't involve sacrifice sacrifice and doesn't call for personal belief. The sinner has to be willing to give Jesus everything. What does Christianity cost you? Nothing. Jesus paid the price all to him I owe. Nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus calls you to abandon everything and follow Him. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer was fond of saying, Christ bids you come, follow Him, and die. And that's an offensive message. It's the offensive message of the cross. Look what it says in verse 61. When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this, He said to them, does this offend you? And you might be thinking, well, it's not the cross. It's the message. Remember earlier he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They're complaining about cannibalism. No, they're not. Jesus isn't asking you to eat his flesh and drink his blood in some sort of monstrous, vampiric, zombie-like superstition. Later, remember, he says, my words are spirit and they are life. His body refers to his humanity and his blood refers to his life. Jesus is using body and blood to describe a sacrifice on the cross. The cross 
is going to result in His death. His blood would be shed on that cross. His flesh would be torn on that cross. The flesh of Jesus is His humanity. His blood is the life. The sacrifice of Jesus is offensive. And it is offensive to some that that God is saying, you must come to this Jesus who dies on this cross. I want a Christless, crossless religion. But here's, again, what the Bible claims. Personal sacrifice isn't offensive to most people. But the death of Jesus is offensive. And you want to know why? Because the Bible claims that the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary to forgive your sins. And guess what that says? That there's something monstrously wrong with your sin. That God cares about the fact that your sin has separated you from God. For the Jew, life was in the blood. When a person was wounded, blood would flow out of their body, and with the, with the absence of blood came the absence of life. And that's why even to this day, the observant Jew will not eat flesh with its life, that is, with blood. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. Only you shall not eat flesh or meat with its life, that is, blood, Deuteronomy 15:23 Only you shall not eat its blood you shall pour it on the ground like water People want Christianity but they don't want a cross they are offended by the cross and some people are repulsed and revolted by the cross for them, Christianity is some sort of a caricature. They see historical Christianity with this person who's half God, half man, who's come to the earth, that this God, whoever he is, impregnated some poor, unsuspecting virgin, possibly as young as 13 years old, a creator who's a child molester. They see Christianity as a, a bloody religion, demanding blood, demanding human sacrifice. And so they opt for something else. The real problem is that people are ignorant. They need information, and if they have the right information, they'll be fine. But that's not what the Bible says. Paul knew people would be repulsed, revolted by the cross of Jesus. It represents the awful shame of sin, but it also represents the pure promise of a God who desires to save us from guilt and sin. No wonder Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul wrote, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He offended almost everyone he met with those words. We're living in a culture and a society that says do not offend no matter what. But you know what? 
the cross will continue to offend. Does the cross trouble you? Does it offend you? The person who's offended by the message of the cross is not offended by their own sin. They're not offended by the outrageousness of their sin. For them, their sin is a, it's a mistake. We all make mistakes. It's a failure. After all, we're all human. It's a shortcoming. It's a faux pas. It's an understandable human weakness. Sin is not the outrageous insult to the perfect holiness of God that separates us from Him, that must be dealt with for the unbeliever, for the make-believer. They are outraged. They are incensed. They are offended by Christians who constantly challenge their faith. And you know what their faith is? I don't need God, and I don't need a cross, and I don't need Christ. Well, what is your belief? Well, I believe that if you just do the best that you can, you'll be fine. I believe that sin doesn't really matter. I believe that there are many ways to heaven. I believe that Satan's way is the best way. I believe that God doesn't have a real purpose for my life and you just sort of have to make it up as you go along. Really? They may not come right out and say that, but the way that they live and the way that they act betrays how they really feel. Most people don't find it difficult to believe Jesus or to believe his claims. They just simply don't want to. And look at the call to surrender your life in verse 62. It says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? This is arguably a difficult passage, and I'm going to try and make it make sense. Read it again. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The passage means one of two things. It it means that Jesus will die on a cruel Roman cross, that Jesus will rise from the dead, that he will ascend into heaven. Undiscerning men and undiscerning women are offended by the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. Why is this offensive? Because if Jesus really did die on the cross, and if he really did rise from the dead, and if he really did ascend into heaven, if that really happened, then he is the living Lord of the universe. He is the exalted King. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the fact that he is the living Lord who is seated at the right hand of the Father demands that we surrender our lives to Him. Could mean that. Could mean something else. I want to draw your attention to the phrase where He was before. Remember in John's Gospel over and over again, He's repeatedly said, I have come from heaven. I have come from heaven. I have come from heaven. Where do you suppose he came from? He came from heaven. Do any of you own a video camera? Or watch a DVD or a tape? And have you ever hit the rewind button? And whatever it is that you've just filmed goes backwards? It could very well be 
what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Could Jesus be saying, stop the tape? Let's just for a moment pretend he never walked on the water. He never fed the 5,000. He did not heal the people. He, he did not heal the man at Bethesda. He did, he did not heal the young man in Capernaum. He, he didn't turn the water into wine. He wasn't born of a virgin. Um, the promises that were made in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it never happened. You go back through space and through time. You go all the way back to the recesses of Moses. You go back to the time of Abraham. The promise was never made to Abraham. You go back through time and, the, and the, prob, the promise was never made to Noah. You go back through time. And there really is no Savior. You're still in your sin. Paul talks about it in the New Testament. He says if Jesus Christ isn't the Lord and if Jesus Christ isn't risen from the dead, then you're still in your sin and you're going to hell in a handbasket. Are you okay with that? But here's what the Bible teaches. Everyone apart from, from Christ is in big, stinking trouble. And if Jesus isn't the living Lord, then you have no reason to surrender your life. And look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are Spirit and they are life. Who gives life? The Holy Spirit. What kind of life? Eternal life. The flesh profits next to nothing, mostly nothing. Do you know what your flesh is? Remember, your flesh isn't the physical tissue that hangs from your skeleton. It isn't, it isn't the flesh and blood on your body. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Your flesh is everything about you apart from Christ, not just the bad things about you, but even the good things about you. You might be thinking, well, even before I was a Christian, I was pretty good looking. Or even before I became a Christian, I was very beautiful. I was intelligent. Before I became a Christian, people liked me. Well, that's all well and good. But in your flesh, you can't know God. You can't save yourself. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you, they're spirit and they are life. Does Jesus want the disciples to believe that you literally eat his body and drink his blood? No, Jesus is reminding them it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Each of us will age. We're going to continue to age, and our flesh will continue the process of surrender and decay. And I know what some of you ladies are thinking. No, preacher, I'm, I'm going to fight it. I am not going to go quietly into the future of age. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to buy oil of Olay. Good luck with that. 
it's not wrong for you to exercise and it's not wrong for you to look beautiful, but the, but the truth is within each and every one of us, the seed of corruption is inside of us and it will germinate and we will die. Ray Kurzweil was on a television program not too long ago. Ray Kurzweil is one of the most brilliant people of our time, one of the greatest inventors of, of all time. And on this radio program, or excuse me, television program, he suggested that with biology and technology, there is going to be a mechanism that will take place in the Human Genome Project where all of the things that kill us will be able to turn off the environmental factors, will be able to turn off the genetic factors with biology. Biology and technology, technology, we will live forever. And I smiled. And I thought about visiting Ray Kurzweil with his brain in a jar. And saying, Ray, how are you you doing in there? Once a man dies, his flesh is gone forever, never to return. And there's never been an exception. All men die. It is appointed once for a human being to die and then judgment. And you know what? This teaching is offensive. Particularly to the person who doesn't want to die. We love our flesh. We love this world. We love its pleasure. We love its feeling. We desire to feed those passions. We want good feelings. We want material and physical pleasure. We want to feed our ego. We want to cultivate our image. We want human recognition. We want institutional praise. We desire self-centered fame. We relish benevolent honor, stimulating pleasure, earthly wealth. And Satan wants you to believe that this life, this life, this life is all that matters. And if there is a God, if there is a God, his promises are for your worldly profit. If there is a God, he is a God who's there to satisfy you. And this is a message that offends It's the message that offends because not a single person, not a single person, not one single person has ever experienced the forgiveness of sin. Not one single person has ever experienced forgiveness of sin and redemption in Jesus Christ by loving themselves and loving this world. The only way that you can experience hope and the only way that you can experience forgiveness and the only way that you can experience life and love is to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and receive abundant life by receiving the Lord Jesus. But look what it says in verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. I'm sure that Jesus doesn't say that with glee or joy. He he doesn't go, but there's some of you who don't believe. And I'm going to make you believe. I don't think that that's what's happening. Look what it says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus knew that some didn't believe his words. That some didn't receive his words. Your unbelief and your rejection of Jesus Christ comes as no surprise to Jesus. 
For some of you who have family and friends who have repeatedly, consistently, persistently rejected the living Lord of of heaven, those who reject Him, reject Him, reject Him, they reject eternal life. They don't receive the spirit of life. They're merely existing. They don't have abundant life. They, They retain certain knowledges, but they have no assurance of salvation. They doubt, and they live a life of doubt and wonder and false expectation. They're never quite sure. But there are some of you who do not believe. Is that you? Are you still an unbeliever? Do the words of Jesus offend you? Does the cross of Jesus offend you? Does the exaltation of Jesus offend you? Do your sincere efforts to save yourself and the failure of your sincere efforts to fail to save yourself, does that offend you? Are you still convinced that you can lead your own life quite apart from Christ? Are you convinced that pleasure is all that matters? Are you still trying to live up to the expectation of your failed flesh and your pride? Are you still trying to figure out if God is real or even if you're real? Are you trying to figure out what road you're still on? Are you trying to figure out whether or not any of this really matters? Do you wonder if you can obey the gospel? C.S. Lewis said, Obedience is the road to freedom, and humility the road to pleasure, and unity the road to personality. C.S. Lewis said, I never was really alive, and I never even began to live till I submitted myself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in fact, you can't save yourself. Look what it says in verse 65. And he, that is Jesus, said, That's why, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless... It has been granted to him by the Father. You will remember in verse 44, earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, No one, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You can't save yourself. You can't come to God. You can't go to heaven unless you do it on his terms. And here are his terms. Jesus is appointed that the way to the Father is through the Son. This is why later in John 14, Jesus will say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And it's offensive. It is offensive. It is offensive to some that they can't save themselves. The prophet Habakkuk wrote, that the just shall live by faith. In the book of Romans, Paul repeats it. The just shall live by faith. Those who are justified before God will have to live in confidence that God himself will be the provision for your sin. And Jesus knew that some would reject him. And he also knew that they wouldn't simply resist him and that they wouldn't simply reject him, but that they would reject him with a profound. Found hostility. 
it, it isn't going to be, hey, you know what, Jesus? We don't believe you and we don't agree with you. From chapter 6 to chapter 7 to chapter 8, the line of demarcation in the ministry of Jesus has now been made and those who have rejected him aren't content to simply not believe in him. They will actively seek to kill him. And that's the response to the message of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 6. 6. 6. Coincidence? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That's how you can remember the apostate verse. 6. 6. There are those who said, I reject the message of Jesus. For them, it was desertion. It was open defection. For others, it will be firm determination. And at least one subtle deception, many forsook and deserted Jesus. Now remember, remember why. Why did they forsake him? And why did they desert him? Don't kid yourself. It's because Jesus offended them. His message offended them. His demands offended them. The cross offended them. Self-denial offended them. Savior salvation versus self-salvation offended them. To put it as simply as I possibly can, salvation simply costs too much. Jesus, what do you want from me? and all of the horrible sin that you committed. I want your present. I want your future. I want everything. I want it all. I want everything. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Again, a literal translation reads this way. Then Jesus said to the twelve, And as for you, You are not desiring to be going away, are you? Answered him Simon Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? Words of life, eternal, you have. And as for us, he's speaking for all of them, we have believed. It's in a continuous verb. The verb tense goes something like this. And as for us, we have have believed, we now believe, we continue to believe, and we have come to know, not just mentally, not just superficially, not just with our brain, we haven't just intellectually acknowledged, but we know experientially that you're the Holy One of God. We have seen who you are. We've seen what you can do. We know, even though we don't understand everything, we know that you are the Holy One of God. When Jesus offended them, They began to listen to him and hear him in light of what he said about himself. Is that what you do when Jesus speaks to you? Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Listen, why would Jesus choose someone? Why would Jesus choose someone who he knew would oppose him, who he knew would betray him? Why would Jesus choose a devil and invite the devil into the most intimate circle of his ministry? Well, the answer in part is found in Psalm 41, verse 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus did it to fulfill prophecy, in part. Jesus did it to fulfill prophecy because guess what? The prophecy is still true. You don't have to reverse the clock. All of the promises and all of the prophecies remain true. Jesus chose Judas because of you. And you might be thinking, what do you mean because of me? Because Jesus knew that some of you would experience betrayal. You can go ahead and answer it. Jesus knew that some of you would be misunderstood. Jesus knew that each and every one of you would need to relate to the fact that someone you love, someone you trust, is going to betray you. Someone is going to misunderstand your motives. Jesus chose Judas as a witness to his perfect moral life. Do you remember that when Jesus betra- Judas betrayed Jesus, he took money. And as he took the money, he came to the realization in Matthew 27, 4, I have betrayed, who knows the rest? I have betrayed innocent blood. Have you ever lost your job and you had to apply for a new job and you needed a reference? How many of you would pick a person who hates you? Hey, look, I know you hate my guts and I know you really, really dislike me, but could you be a reference for me? Most of us would never do that. But Jesus takes a person who is going to betray him. And the person who betrays him is going to have this testimony. I've betrayed innocent blood. Jesus was morally perfect. It's a testimony to his moral excellence that the Lord would pick even someone who hated him to admit that he never did anything wrong. In order for Judas to betray him, he had to listen to the words of Jesus. And he had to come to one of two conclusions. Jesus is saying things that I don't agree with. Jesus is saying things that I don't necessarily understand. Jesus is saying something, but it must mean something other than what I am hearing. But the reoccurring testimony? I've come from heaven. I've come to die come to be the sacrifice. So which category do you fall into? What kind of a life are you living? Are you part of the grumbling crowd? Is your life a life of unbelief, of open defection, or is your life like Judas, one of subtle deception? 
where you can't really, really bring yourself to believe that he is who he says he is. And so you walk through this deception in order to make your wife happy, in order to make your husband happy, in order to make your children happy. Or is it like Peter and the other disciples? One of firm determination. I don't know everything. I don't know everything, but I do know this, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that his demands and his expectations are realistic and reasonable. We live in a world where many people want religion evaluated on its practical effects rather than its objective truth claims, and that becomes the pivotal point. Christianity should be followed and Jesus obeyed because he really is who he says he is. In a cathedral at Lubeck in Germany, there's an interesting inscription. It reads like this. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and seek me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me eternal and you seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. You know what the Bible says? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be condemned. This doesn't have to end badly. This can end in such a way where you experience forgiveness of sin and joy and hope and redemption and reconciliation. Or you're going to walk out of here. Maybe never to come back. Because you simply can't believe what I just said to you. hope you make the right choice. Heavenly Father, I pray for every man and every woman who's listening to my voice. Lord, I know, I know, I know that Jesus will offend some. Lord, I pray that the unbeliever would come to a place where they do believe. That they will abandon their false beliefs and embrace the true belief that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. For the Christian, that they would not abandon what Jesus himself has said about himself. That there is, what Paul wrote, that there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Lord, I pray. For each and every person who's listening. That when we hear things difficult and we hear things hard, that we would resolve in our heart to love Jesus and serve Jesus and minister to Jesus and remind ourselves that we can trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person 
who comes here tonight far from you, Lord, I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner and I am in great, great need of a Savior. I can't save myself. My sins are too dark and too many. I need Jesus, His offer of hope and of love and of forgiveness and of redemption. I place my full and my final trust in Him. I want to walk with Him and obey Him. Lord, I pray that You would give me the courage to love You and seek You and serve You and glorify You all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.